Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when people went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party congratulated him for bringing the Gentiles in. No, they criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. There's an implied, what do you have to say for yourself at the end of that verse? And we saw this last week, chapter 10, the Lord brought salvation to the Gentiles. Up to this point, the church had been exclusively Jewish. The entire Bible had pretty much been exclusively Jewish up to this point, except for the very beginning of Genesis. We went to Cornelius's house, who had a vision from an angel that said, send for Peter. He's going to come and tell you everything you need to know. Peter had a vision in a trance, remember, of the sheet being lowered, and we're going to run through this all again. And he comes to Cornelius's house, starts preaching the gospel. The Lord sends the Holy Spirit down on Cornelius and his house before Peter even finishes the message. So they baptized them, and he stayed there for a few days. We saw that in verse 48. He stayed there for some days. Now he's got to go back and deal with the fallout. Word travels fast, it seems, and the church in Jerusalem does not receive a, hey, fellas, please pray about this. I think God might be leading me to preach the gospel to Gentiles. They got a just-so-you-know kind of message. Hey, guys, we got Gentile Christians now. It's like That's kind of a big decision, Peter. Don't you think we all should have been in on that? They're not happy about it. He returns. He has to face... The circumcision party, as the ESV translates it. Note, this is not everybody. This is not the apostles. This is not the, the deacons, the seven that we read about earlier. This is a certain group. This in Greek is hoiek peritomes, those that are of the circumcision. So they call it the circumcision party in ESV because it, it helps you get what these people were. We're going to see a lot of them, especially in Paul's epistles, because they're not going to like Paul very much. And it says that they criticized him. That word for criticize in verse 2 may be translated differently in your version, but the Greek word there is diakrino. Do you remember when Peter was supposed to go with the men that came to Simon's house and the Lord said, go with them without hesitation or without making a judgment, making a distinction? That's the same word. The Lord told Peter, don't evaluate this. Don't make a distinction or a separation, which is what that word can mean. So don't do that. Just go. Well, they see Peter, and the first thing they do is they're going to diacrino. They're going to separate, make a distinction, make a judgment. And we're going to lean into that word because it comes up a couple times. Their judgment was that he had eaten with Gentiles. Now, in this culture, in our culture too, but more so there, if you're having dinner with somebody, having a meal with somebody, that was a big deal. Especially if you invited them into their house or you went into their house and the, the logic of it went, your body is being nourished by the same food that is nourishing me. So there's a union that happens there. And you saw this in even the Middle Ages in Europe and so on, that if you had a meal with somebody, there was an implied alliance there. That we might be at war, but if the kings have eaten dinner together, at least that day they're not going to fight. Because there's something special about that. We still have that in a lesser degree today. But this was with Gentiles. Now notice, this is not something that the law of Moses had forbidden. This is something the tradition had forbidden. Culturally, this was unacceptable. And you can see that these Christians were more offended over Peter's dinner plans than they were joyful at the salvation of the Gentiles. They were more offended that Peter would eat with a Gentile than they were excited that God would save a Gentile. That's backwards, isn't it? Isn't that sick? Mark chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus had said to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And I'm willing to bet that some of these of the circumcision were Pharisees who had been saved. We know Paul was a Pharisee. I'm sure there were a lot of them. And sometimes, you all know this as well as I do, when we get saved, there's still some stuff the Lord's got to knead out of that lump of dough. And for them, there was some cultural stuff they had to work through because they were also in danger of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish their tradition. Jesus would go on in that same passage to say, you are teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
You're putting the words of men on an equal plane with the words of God. Did Jesus hate tradition? No, but he hated that. You got to keep them at the right perspective and they had gotten it wrong. And you all know this, but this is what we're talking about today and it needs to be heard in every generation. Prejudice of any kind is unacceptable in the church of Jesus Christ. This had nothing to do with God and salvation. This was cultural. There was a cultural bias here. Those Gentiles are unclean. And it wasn't just that they were unclean, was it? It was there was a whole political thing going on. This is our nation. This is our country. They're oppressing our country. They're trying to change our country. They've brought in all these Hellenizers that are warping the culture, and we've got to keep that. And Peter, you're gone, and you're, you're accepting them. And you didn't even make them get circumcised or, or keep the law or any of that. Cultural prejudice. Racial prejudice, obviously. Economic prejudice. Political prejudice. However normal, meaning however accepted it is in your community, is sinful. And this goes up or down. We usually think of it going down, don't we? Like, I can't stand those people. The rich people hating the poor. The people in power hating the people that are not in power. But look at this. This is prejudice going up. This is them hating their oppressors. And there's been a, a rework or an attempted rework of some of the words we use in English in our culture where you've heard this, that racism is, is about power. Have you heard that? That if you're not in power, you can't be racist, but if you are in power, you can or whatever. Look, you can define it however you want. I really don't care what word you use, you know? <laughs> I'm more concerned with the attitude. Do you hate people for something that is material. If you do, you are not acting like Jesus. Would these Christians have preferred that Peter have dinner with a Sadducee who hated Christ? They probably would have. Because, well, that's fine. We're all on the same team. We're all a part of the same culture. Doesn't work. Loving people with the gospel involves sharing with them. Remember how Jesus would touch the leper? He would touch the blind man. He was willing to touch the woman who had the issue of blood. And I made this point several times in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus never shared in somebody's sin, but he would often share in somebody's uncleanness. At the end of every single day where Jesus did ministry, he would have been ceremonially unclean. He would have been touching all these people that had all these diseases. And that's what it means to love people with the Gospel, to share in their uncleanness, not their sin. We're not going to talk about that because you all know that. Sharing in their uncleanness, the things that make us uncomfortable, the things that we have decided we're not going to do but have nothing to do with Jesus. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians, when you place material characteristics about a person before your love for their soul, you're acting like mere men. I love how Paul says that, mere men, just like, just like normal people. So, well, that's what we are. No, you're not. You are a saint bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit. He's saying it's, it's not worthy of your status to be treating people that way, to be evaluating people according to the flesh, which is what these people were doing. I, it's amazing, isn't it? They come back, and I can just imagine that the other 11 are probably rather sheepish at this moment. Because remember, these were young guys. And whenever you have a young guy like myself, but who's brought in and you've got all these Pharisees, priests even, that were now part of the church, older, wise, seasoned men, teachers of the law, maybe even leaders of the community, men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and some of their friends. And you know that sometimes one person will get radically saved and they bring in all their friends and their friends don't get quite as radically saved. <laughs> you've all experienced that before. Sometimes God works all this stuff out right away. Other times, it's a long process. I found for me it's been more of a long process. But these 11 apostles having to deal with this, I don't know what Peter did. I don't know. I trust Peter. Don't you trust Peter? Well, I did until he did this. It's funny, I have found that people will love you and trust you until the second you do something that they don't like. And then it's like, don't you trust me? It's like, uh, and this is maybe a, a rabbit trail, but I remember talking. There was, I don't remember the circumstance. That's probably for the best. But some preacher, famous teacher, famous something or other Christian had done something that at first blush made us all kind of go, uh. And then I, there were friends and people I knew. So, I'm done with him. I don't want anything to do with him ever again. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear his name spoken. We're going to be like Haman. Whenever you hear his name, we hiss because we don't like him anymore. And I said, well, don't you trust him? Did, hasn't he shown us by his life and by the fruit that God has borne that he's deserving of our trust? And maybe he's earned the benefit of the doubt. I said, well, the second he did that, he totally blew it. And I'm like, jeez, remind me to keep an eye on you. <laughs> 
I hope I'll get more grace from you. I hope I can give you more grace if that ever happens. Like, shouldn't we know their character enough that when they do something that we're not 100% sure on, we're willing to suspend judgment until we at least hear from them? These guys didn't think so. Explain yourself, sir. You ate with a Gentile. Talk about majoring on the minors. Well, verse 4, what does Peter have to say for himself? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. That is a lot of stuff that was not kosher. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. There's that word diacrino again. These six brothers, you can imagine Peter having the six brothers with him. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter runs through that whole story again. Chapters 10 and 11 repeats the stories several times. Because as I said last week, this is one of the most pivotal stories in the entire Bible, where now the Lord has expanded the scope of his mission and his salvation from the Jews to everyone. So they're going to tell the story until you get it, how important this is. And once again, Peter uses that word diacrino in verse 12, making no distinction. He's teaching the church that God had told him, our old ways of evaluating people are no longer valid. This is what it means to be a believer. Your way of judging people and evaluating things has to change until you evaluate and judge things and people the way that God does. Because the Lord Jesus had seen fit to accept these people with the same demonstration of power. Just like happened at Pentecost, happened in Cornelius' house. So Peter is saying, I have no right to exclude them from the church. In Acts chapter 2, Peter himself had preached this in Acts 2, 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, I'll bet you if Peter and the apostles had had a minute to think, how would we present the gospel to the Gentiles? They might have added something to those verses, but God wasn't about to let them do that. He says, I'm going to give them the Holy Spirit first, and then you can baptize them. He's sending a message by putting his stamp of approval on these Romans, these oppressors. These are people that were in the promised land, keeping the Jews in line. Cornelius was a centurion. He was in charge of a hundred soldiers. His job was when the Jews got rowdy to bring out soldiers and start knocking heads together. And the Lord said, go and take the gospel to this man. I've used the example before. Think of the Romans like you'd think of Nazi collaborators, like Nazis marching in, occupying France. Lord, you got to get them out of there. And then God tells the leader of the Jewish underground resistance, go and take the gospel to that commander of the Nazi soldiers. You went into that house and you had dinner with that guy? What team are you on? What was I supposed to do? Well, didn't you at least make them convert to Judaism first? Well, I would have, but then the Lord sent his Holy Spirit and poured it out on them. What was I supposed to do? The Lord chose them. The Lord teaches. He does not honor our prejudice. And that word diacrino, as I've said before, it means to separate or to discriminate or to make a distinction and a judgment. And that's what prejudice does. We exclude people from the gospel by requiring 
inconsequential changes before welcoming them into God's family. Anytime you say you've got to believe in Jesus Christ and here's a list of stuff you've got to do. And again, I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about here's the righteous works that Jesus has proclaimed. I'm talking about stuff that we don't like. Prejudice. You've got to stop acting like one of those people. You've got to stop dressing that way. You've got to stop listening to that kind of music. You've got to stop talking that way. You've got to stop blank, 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 blank. Inconsequential changes. Things that have nothing to do with God, they just make us uncomfortable. And you might have very good, well-reasoned, historical reasons for being uncomfortable. The Lord still doesn't care. Jews and Gentiles, is it that serious? Because the Lord thought that was not a big deal when it came to salvation. The only thing that keeps somebody from Jesus and being in fellowship in the church is sin. And if a person repents of their sin, you or I are not permitted to refuse them fellowship for any reason. If a believer walks in that door, it doesn't matter what they look like. It doesn't matter how they're dressed. It doesn't matter any of that, that cultural stuff. Say, so who cares? We are brothers in Christ. I don't know if I want them to be my brother. Well, you can't choose your family, but Jesus can. And he did. Salvation is how? By grace through faith. That's it. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. Look how I turned this guy around. You know what she used to do? You know what he used to do? Well, we, we fixed that right quick. You know where they used to live? We got them out of there right away because nothing good can come out of Nazareth. We got to get them out of there. There is no more Jew-Greek distinction in the church. Prejudice places you outside of the heart of God. And we're going to see, tragically, the church in Jerusalem is going to slowly become more and more insignificant to the story of the book of Acts because they never were able to grasp this. Well, verse 18, the story takes a more positive turn. When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is to their credit. They were not comfortable with this. Had they been taught their whole life, never eat with a Gentile, never talk to a Gentile, never shake hands with a Gentile. Remember on Fiddler on the Roof where they're, they're celebrating and they're going to dance with each other and he kind of takes his hand with two fingers like this. We don't touch them. We don't hang out with them. And the Lord says, yeah, not in my church. That's not how we're going to do it. We're not going to walk on the other side of the Samaritans. We're not going to walk on the other side of the Gentiles. We're not going to stand outside the gate and holler and ask if the centurion could please come out because I can't go into his house. Like, not in my church. We're not doing that. But they did set us a great example here. They're like, okay, if that's the way the Lord wants to do it, then what are we supposed to do? But as we will see, especially as we get to Acts chapter 15, especially if you read through the book of Galatians, they believed this and confessed it with their mouth. They had a very hard time living this out because there's a bunch of assumptions packed into verse 18, such as, well, I mean, obviously they're going to have to be circumcised. Obviously they're going to have to start keeping the food laws. I mean, that was just a symbolic thing, Peter. God didn't actually mean we could eat whatever food we want. That's not what God meant. And they, they will have to learn this lesson a few more times. In fact, in chapter 15, they're going to have to make some rules that aren't really essential to salvation, but they're like, listen, guys, the Jews are going to go crazy if you eat stuff with the blood in it, so please don't eat it with the blood. And then eventually we would get to a place where the church could accept this. They were still holding on to their traditions, their rules, their prejudices in practice, even though they weren't saying it out loud. I don't hate Gentiles. I just think they have to become Jews. Okay, <laughs> well, that sort of amounts to the same thing, doesn't it? The church would be obsessed with the food laws. They'd be obsessed with special days, especially with circumcision, because they could not conceive of a Christian that did not do those things. You read through the book of Colossians, Paul just hammers this. He says, if you think that the Sabbath is special, congratulations, just leave him alone. If you think that you should only eat vegetables because you never know if that meat might have been sacrificed to an idol, then God bless you. Bless your heart. We're going to be over here and we're going to eat meat because we have the liberty to do that. This is why Paul would be sort of the bull in the church china shop. Even Barnabas would have a hard time with Paul, as we will see. They could not conceive of a Christian. And guys, can I give you the, the key phrase that will alert you to the fact that you may be slipping into this? You say this, you say, I know all it takes to be saved is by faith. But here it is, I don't see how you can be a Christian and blank. 
That's a, that's a warning phrase. It's not always wrong, but that's the phrase that you always hear. I don't see how you can be a Christian and dress like that. I don't see how you can be a Christian and wear your hair like that. I don't see how you can be a Christian and blank, blank, blank. The good news is you don't have to see how. As long as the Lord sees how, that's enough. Matters of the flesh that are important to us, but have no bearing on a person's salvation. And we all have these preferences. I have them too. You have them. I have them. Everybody has them. There are groups of people that you just feel uncomfortable around. You sit down at, at a table somewhere, and somebody sits next to you, and he's got a big old ring sticking out of his nose, and his hair is all spiked up and colored, and he's got tattoos up and down his neck. You maybe will scoot down an extra seat. Oh, man, that guy needs Jesus. Maybe he already has Jesus. How do you know? Well, Christians don't look like that. Where is that written? I'm using an obvious example. And some of y'all just maybe thought, well, but yeah, but if they were a Christian, they wouldn't. Yeah, see, that's it right there. And it applies to all kinds of things. We are to have an attitude of love, of that agape, that, that unconditional love. That's the base. That's the baseline. Diacrino, though, is where we always tend to drift, making a distinction. We distinguish between people. That there are different categories of people. This one is more ready for Jesus than this one. Or this person needs Christ more than this person. That's a dangerous attitude. You know what that does? That's the kind of attitude that will send us to a foreign country to proclaim the gospel to those poor Hindus, but we will never go to the person next door because I'm sure they're saved. Why? Because they look like you, they dress like you, their house is clean. Now, what does that have anything to do with salvation? Agape is the foundation, not diacrino. And the thing is, when we start saying stuff like that, well, that makes it so simple. Yes, it does. It's tough for me even to preach this, you guys, because I've got my own issues. When there are people that you know who have different political views, and let's leave aside the obvious stuff, like the stuff that wants to permit abortion up until four years old or something like that. Okay, let's leave that aside. Somebody who has a different tax policy than you. Somebody who has a different immigration policy than you. Somebody who's a pacifist. Or maybe somebody who is pro-war and you don't see how a Christian could ever be pro-war. Different political views. Who cares? Does Jesus care? Jesus set up a monarchy. <laughs> the Lord set up a monarchy in Israel. So, why are we worried about what the different political views are? People have different dietary convictions. Maybe there are people who are vegan or vegetarian, and that's how they live, and it just makes you mad. Those people trying to change our country. And Maybe you are the vegetarian, and you can't see how a Christian who is supposed to be pro-life would dare eat another animal. And some of you guys on either side are rolling your eyes right now. What does any of that have to do with Jesus? People who raise their kids differently. People who dress differently. People who view history differently. Maybe 4th of July, you've got your three-cornered hat and five flags in your yard, and you're singing, oh, say, can you see from dawn till dusk. Maybe there's somebody down the road who's not so proud of their country and thinks, I, all I can ever see is all the terrible things that our country's done. And you get mad, and you want to start throwing things at them. But they're a believer in Jesus Christ. Well, if you were really a believer, hold on, hold on. People who treat their money differently. This is a big one. And this one goes up and down too. Maybe you have no money and you look at the way that people who have money spend their money and you're like, how can you be a Christian and be rich? I just don't get it. After Jesus said to sell everything you have and follow me, after Jesus said that you cannot serve God and mammon, these people that have all these big houses and all this stuff and investments and there's people dying in the streets, how could you justify that? Or maybe you have money and you look at people that are irresponsible with their money. Didn't the Bible tell us to be wise? Didn't the Bible tell us that we should take the 10 talents and use them as best we can and the Lord will give us more? Shouldn't we be responsible? I can help people because I've made money now and they can't. That's not right. I don't see how you can be a Christian and all of a sudden you've got two churches on either side of the tracks. They're both wrong. Jesus went to the lepers and he went to Zacchaeus. He went to the docks and preached to the fishermen, and then he went to the tax collector that took all their money after they brought the catch of fish in. None of that stuff matters. What does any of that have to do with Jesus? None of it has anything to do with Christ, and that's all that really matters. In 2 Corinthians 5.16, this is a verse to memorize, y'all. From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. If it's not going to make a difference in heaven, it shouldn't make a difference now. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. You regard Christ according to the flesh? Oh, of course not. Do you consider Christ like 
Just some poor guy, some poor Jew from around the world. Why would I care what he had to say? He lived a long time ago. He didn't even know about science. He didn't even know about blah, 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 blah. And you're like, no, I would never think that. Jesus is the son of God. I think about him spiritually. You've got to think about the people in your life the same way. Think about them the way God thinks about them. Does God look at them and say, oh, come on, cut your hair so I can save you? (laughs) The Lord would never say something like that, would he? Would the Lord say, man, would you just give away more money so you can be saved? I can't save you if you've got that much money. Oh, give me a break. You guys know that, right? It's easy to conflate tradition and preference with sin. But you guys, that's the sin. When you take your preference and your tradition and you say, this is right, and if you do it differently, you are wrong. The Bible gives you plenty of places on what sin is. There are whole lists of sins that the Bible gives you. That's enough for us. We shouldn't go beyond that. You just stay right there. There's plenty to keep you busy, I promise. And a lot of times we obsess over that other stuff because if we didn't, then that opens up a whole world that I've got to all of a sudden be open to. You're right, you do. And that's pretty much also what Paul will teach us when we get to those passages in Romans and 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. He says, if the Bible doesn't call it a sin, then just shut up. Don't come out and start judging people. He says, it is not before you that a servant stands or falls. It's before his master, which is the Lord. He says, and the Lord is able to make him stand. You know what's great about that? Paul says, you might look at that and say, what are you doing? How can you do that? And the Lord's like, I got him. But Lord, they'll fall if they do that. He says, no, I won't. I've got him. You're just going to let them continue? Yeah, I will, because I love them that much. You're only supposed to love me that much. (laughs) Sometimes we want more mercy from the Lord than we're willing to give to other people. Have you noticed? The church was being called to a new level of love. And here's what's going to happen, guys. We're going to see next the church in Antioch. If your love for people only goes this high, it will put a cap on your effectiveness in the kingdom of God. If you are only, this is as far as we're willing to go in our love for people. That will set limits on how much God can use you. But if you can allow the Lord to expand your love for people, he will expand your effectiveness in the kingdom of God as well. We always have to be pushing the boundaries of love. And I I tell this to our ministry leaders, and when you show up before church and you have our prayer meeting, we're always kind of going through the philosophy of ministry a little bit. We always want to err on the side of grace. I'd rather get burned loving somebody for a long time and trusting them and love hoping all things, and then one day they blow up and they leave and we never see them again, than to send somebody away that God could have saved. One of my favorite stories, and we're going to move on, but... One of my favorite testimonies and stories, there's a uh, woman, her name is Lacey, used to be Mosley. I don't know if she's changed her name since she's been married, but she was the lead singer of a band called Flyleaf. And uh, I always liked that band growing up because I liked the really heavy metal with the screaming and everything. And she was a girl who screamed, and I thought that was pretty cool, you know. But she was a believer, and the way she got saved is she was just, you know, total metalhead, punk, you know, dark makeup, dark clothing, didn't care. All those people, by the way, are desperately hurting and desperately broken. She goes to her grandma's church, if I'm not mistaken. She gets dragged to church. She had purpose in her heart that that weekend she was going to kill herself. While she's at this church, she is hearing the message. She's hearing the gospel, doesn't want to hear it, gets up and leaves. And she said this, this old man in a coat and tie grabs her before she walks out the door and says, young lady, do you know that Jesus loves you and you're his daughter? And she said she just broke down crying and the Lord saved her right in that moment. That man, this is, a, this is an old man who grown up in the church, had watched the whole transition when people showed up to church in their Sunday best and everything was great. And now they're bringing their kids and they got bones and rods sticking out of their ears and noses. And rather than turning up his nose, he went up to her and said, don't you know that Jesus loves you? He didn't say, hey, come back here with a dress on next time. <laughs> How awful would that have been? That's all it took. You hear that and like, what, that's it? All he said is that Jesus loves you? Yes. She'd been working so hard to push everybody away. And this man, who was so culturally separate from her, that they probably would have never hung out, never seen each other anywhere except at church, but he knew God enough to know that this young lady needs Jesus. Isn't that awesome? That's who we need to be. To be pushing the boundaries of love. To pride ourselves in a good way on how much we love people. If we have Christ in common, the rest makes no difference, does it? Well, let's read verse 19. There was a church that got this. The one in Jerusalem did not, unfortunately. But verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, you remember this is why Philip went to Samaria and so on. 
They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So we've watched the gospel spread through the whole promised land, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. It started to push up into the Decapolis with Christians in Damascus and areas like that. But now you see that the gospel has totally overflowed the banks of the promised land. When the persecution came, the Christians scattered and they took the gospel with them. You can imagine Satan giving a demotion to whatever demon started that persecution. It's like, what did you do that for? We had them in one spot and now they're everywhere. And they're like dandelion seeds. It's just, now there's going to be a thousand of them. We're never going to get rid of it all. And we see these cities mentioned here. Phoenicia. Phoenicia was a region. If you ever read in the Old Testament about the cities of Tyre and Sidon, those were Phoenician cities. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess who married into Ahab's family. Famous for their merchants, their mercantile system. They were the first ones to, to sail around the coast of Africa and come up through the Red Sea. And that was pretty cool region, but they were very prideful people, and the Lord had a lot of things to say to them. Cyprus was an island just to the west of Syria, at the far eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Antioch was just to the north of Syria, uh, in what is modern-day Turkey, very, very down near the south. Cyrene is on the other end. This is the capital of Libya, which is, of course, in North Africa. And so you can see what's happening is the gospel is going around the Mediterranean Sea. They're taking it along the coastlines. Cyrene is also interesting because Simon of Cyrene was the one that carried Jesus' cross. And we read in one of Paul's epistles, he says, hey, say hi to Rufus for me. And Rufus was the son of Simon of Cyrene. So pretty cool how they became Christians as well. So it could be, don't know, but it's just interesting to think about that Simon had gone home and taken the gospel with him. Now, first it says the gospel is only going to the Jews. It's really kind of a uncomfortable thing to read, isn't it? Speaking the word to no one except Jews. But once Peter uncorked the bottle, once the Lord brought salvation to Cornelius, the Hellenist, now we read before that the Hellenist described Greek-cultured Jews. In this context, when we use the word Hellenist, it's in contrast to the word Jew in verse 19. So this is Greek Gentiles. You remember Greeks, even to this day, refer to their own country as Hellas. The Romans called them Greeks, and that's what the rest of us say, but they call themselves Hellenes or Hellenists. So these Greek Gentiles are getting the gospel too. When evangelism is driven by cultural superiority, it stagnates. When it's driven by love, though, that's when evangelism gives way to revival. Have you ever read the biography of Hudson Taylor? He was a missionary to China. And when he went over there, one of the problems he was running into is all the missionaries there, and there were a lot of missionaries, but they were limited in their effectiveness because they not only continued to dress and act like Englishmen, they were insisting that the men and women that got saved began to do the same. Stop eating all that rice. Stop leaving your hair long like that. Cut it short. Wear a suit and tie. Don't dress in your traditional ways, and then you can be a Christian. He shows up. And he starts to dress himself like a Chinaman. He grows his hair out long. He starts to wear the robes. And every time he went to one of their missionary meetings, he got blasted for it. He's like, you're embarrassing yourself dressing like that. But you know what? He was more effective than any missionary that had ever been to China to this day, just about. Because he said, who cares about the culture? I'm worried about souls being saved. We're all going to be together in heaven. So what difference does it make? You read the biography of George Whitfield and John Wesley as well, but Whitfield more so. He would preach the gospel to the coal miners in the morning. He'd spend the rest of the day going up to the nobility and preaching in their salons and preaching in all of their, their fancy, well-to-do places. And then he'd go back and he'd preach in the streets again at the end of the day. Because he wasn't worried about, number one, being some kind of revolutionary. We're going to topple the rich. And number two, he wasn't going to get away from all those dirty coal miners so that I can be up here with people who are clean. Pastor Chuck in Calvary Chapel welcomed the hippies in, and they didn't all like it. All the people in his church, they're like, what? this is supposed to be the one place in California where I can get away from those dirty hippies, and you're inviting them in. We just put down new carpet. Here they come in with their bare feet. One of the elders put up a sign on the door that said, shirt, shoes required. 
And they said, what is this for? And the elders said, well, we just put down the new carpet. They're coming in here with their bare feet. They're going to ruin the carpet. And Pastor Chuck took it, ripped it up. And at the next board meeting, he said, if this is going to prevent them from coming in, let's just rip up the carpet because this is more important. And they didn't come in and say, now that you're here, you got to shave your beard. you got to cut your hair. you got to start dressing right. Get rid of those awful looking jeans and put yourself a suit on. When Jesus in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 and 38 When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When you turn on the TV and you see whatever group you can't stand rallying for something, don't look at them and say, no, it's terrible, dirty people. Don't they know blank, blank, blank? No, you look at them and say, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And you get on your knees and you start to pray for them. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The Lord's like, I've got so many people I want to save. I don't have enough people to bring it in. By the way, that's the verse that the Lord used to let me know that I was going to be in full-time ministry because I read that and I said out loud in my car while I was praying, said, Lord, I don't want to pray for laborers. I want to be a laborer. It's like that came out of my mouth and I had never expected to say that out loud. Guys, our mission is not to fix people. Our mission is not to teach them how to keep clean or how to dress or what their culture ought to be. This is a dangerous thing. And I don't want to say this too strongly because then you can start doing the opposite problem. That's no good either. But we need to make sure that we're not exporting Christian culture to people. Christians, we have our own bands that we listen to. We have our own movies that we watch. We have our own style of dress. We have our own way of talking. We have our own Facebook groups. We have our own conferences and events that we go to. All that's fine. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The minute you start defending that stuff, you're wrong. Because who cares about that stuff? Who cares? Who cares if we never get to have another number one recording artist on the Christian charts? What does that have to do with Jesus? People get to hear the gospel. Yeah, great. There's advantages to it, but that's not the gospel. And if you're going to try and preach that to people, most people that are not Christians are going to look at that and say, if you're trying to convert me to Veggie Tales and Hillsong worship, I'm not interested. Because they see that and like, that's so lame. What do I want that for? And it is kind of lame, some of it. Let's be honest. Not all of it, but some of it is. Some of y'all laughed and some of y'all got real angry at me right now. This is great. What's the point? None of that has anything to do with Jesus. Well, you're saying that I should teach them the world's culture? No, we're not, we don't teach culture. That's not our thing. We teach this, this right here. That's all we teach. That's why we teach verse by verse. Because if I teach topically, you guys, my shortcoming, I'm going to get a little soapbox and start standing on it every week. Here's what's got me angry this week. For the next four weeks, we're going to be ranting and raving about the things that make me mad. Come on, what is that all about? Or you get on the other side and you start wanting the world to like you. Let's see, what's hot? Let's, what's hot on, on the news today? Let's talk about that. People will want to come and hear about that. Let's make a clever pun based on the latest top-selling album. That'll get them in. It's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? You're like, oh, we do that, don't we? It has nothing to do with Jesus. The church at Antioch weren't out there, all right, Gentiles, now that you're here, here are the foods you're allowed to eat. There would have been some Gentile going, all right, peace, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. I can't have bacon anymore. You've got to be kidding me. We are to bring them the free gift of God's grace. It's free. It's free. It's gratis. It costs you nothing. We love people like Jesus did. And it's from this moment on, through the book of Acts, except for maybe the next chapter, the church of Antioch is going to step up into the forefront and the church in Jerusalem is going to fade to the background. I think it's partly, I don't want to be uncharitable, but partly because they never fully learned this lesson. We're going to see when Paul comes back from all his missionary journeys, they're still not comfortable with Paul preaching to the Gentiles. Paul, we've heard that you're letting Gentiles into the temple, and they're still dealing with this problem. And we're going to see that the church of Antioch, though, is going to be the Lord's Lord's vanguard going out in the front. Verse 22. So, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles now. Revival is happening. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Good choice. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord. Key there. Faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. 
for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. There he is. Told you he'd be back. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Don't ever be embarrassed of the word Christian. It's in the Bible. It's been there since the beginning. We should be proud of that name. Oh, if whenever I say Christian, people think blah, blah, blah. Go out there and redeem that word. Don't give it up. Redeem that word. Show people what it's supposed to mean. Well, the apostles send Barnabas to check it out. Barnabas was from Cyprus, so it makes him the ideal choice to go check out what these Cyprian ministries are doing. In addition to his character, he's the son of encouragement. That's what his name means, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And he says he was a good man. This is this is not, don't read too much into this, but this is the only person in the book of Acts that Luke says is a good man. The word is agathos. He was a good man. You ever know somebody like, you can't really describe their character. That's a, that's a good man. That's who Barnabas was. Everybody liked Barnabas. And this is where Paul, right now still called Saul of Tarsus, is going to re-enter the story. Barnabas gets up, sees what's going on, and he goes, you know, wasn't there that guy that came to Jerusalem all those years ago? It's been... 14 to 17 years now since Paul first came to Jerusalem. He says, yeah, and, and he was all hopped up about preaching the gospel to Gentiles. Where was Saul of Tarsus? I'm going to go up to Tarsus and see if I can find him. Years of obscurity, and now God is ready to use Saul. And he's going to bring him to Antioch to be one of the elders there. Antioch was the third largest city in the empire. Rome and Alexandria were the first two. Alexandria was in Egypt. But the city of Antioch had about 600,000 people. That's a lot today. Consider back then how many people that would have been. About 25,000 of them were Jews. It was a city on a river, large commercial center. And it was all these cities that are on the, the end of the Mediterranean as you come down. Like if you're coming from Europe, you're not going all the way out here. You're going to hug that coastline. So all these cities were, were big, big business. And it was known for the worship of Daphne who was a Greek and Roman god, goddess. And the story goes that Apollo, who was the, the archer god and everything else, was shot with one of Cupid's arrows because they were having a squabble over who was the better archer. And that's what happens when you don't worship the living god. You get squabbling, petty, childish gods. And, and Cupid said, I'll show you shooting arrows. And he shot Apollo with an arrow, so he fell in love with Daphne, chased her forever and ever until finally she cried out to her river god father, help me, don't let him get me. And he turned her into a laurel tree. What a wonderful story. <laughs> but the reason I tell it is because if you ever wondered why at the Olympic Games or whatever they give out laurel wreaths, it's because the games were often done in honor of Apollo, whose favorite tree was the laurel tree because of the story of Daphne. So the, the Greek word for laurel tree is Daphne. So there was a grove of laurel trees outside of the city of Antioch where you could go and worship the goddess Daphne and the god Apollo, because the temple there had a bunch of young women that would be out there in the grove that you could go and copulate with in order to reenact the story of Apollo and Daphne with a happy ending. Again, that's a very convenient religion, isn't it? You can go out and, oh, honey, I'm not cheating. I'm going and worshiping. I'm going to church. That's the kind of place where God sent the gospel. We can't go there. I, I can't go there. That's a terrible place. Well, who's going to preach the gospel to them then? And Paul and Barnabas and all these other men bringing the gospel to a city like that. And rather than gathering together and producing some sort of cultural outrage, and we're going to tear down the grove, and we're not going to let this happen anymore, they said, forget that. We're just going to go right to the heart and bring people the gospel of Jesus. Good news to the people. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul would write to the church in Corinth. He said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul says, I have one string on my guitar. Jesus died for your sins. Well, Paul, you know, we're really more accustomed to philosophers coming in and, and we're a very educated people, you understand. And we want to hear something profound. He goes, I don't have anything profound for you. I have Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
They didn't organize a mission to go out and shut down the laurel groves. They just brought the gospel to people and trusted that the gospel would take care of it. And it did. There's no laurel grove there today. When did that stop? When the church gained enough influence that they finally said, we shouldn't be worshiping out here. But if we look at that and say, that's so great. That's what we need to do. Well, no, you're affirming the consequence. They were able to change that because enough people got saved. You can't skip over the people getting saved and just fix that. You've got to start with people getting saved, and then they will make changes. We go right to the heart. And it's so important that Paul and Barnabas were here, because leadership can make or break a revival. So easy to get caught up in some cause or some pet peeve that you start to quench the love of the people. And no longer are you stirring up love like I'm trying to do today, but you're quenching it because you've lifted up some some person or some cause or something, and you just beat it up every week. And then by the time people have come to the church for a long time, they don't love anybody that's not in our little group. That happens every week. Saul, though, of all people, knew that Christ was all that mattered. He says, Christ saved me when I was a terrorist. So I'm not about to go and start putting heavy burdens on people. And Barnabas had love. That, that was Barnabas' deal. We're going to see later on. Barnabas even had love to the point where it drove people crazy. <laughs> Barnabas you got to see what that guy's like. I know, but let's give him another chance. And Paul would be like, maybe we should do separate missionary journeys. It's going to happen later. And it was to these two men, Saul and Barnabas, would go the honor of evangelizing the Gentiles first. Verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit, important, by the Spirit, that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this is the unity of these two churches, where the prophets from Jerusalem are going to the city of Antioch. No competition in God's church. There should not be. We should be over the moon, if another church gets planted down the street and revival breaks out and 10,000 people start going there. That should be super exciting for us. Because who cares? I'm not worried about what they're doing. I'm just worried about what I'm doing, what we're doing, what God has told us to do. And Agabus, we're going to meet Agabus again in Acts chapter 21. He's still going to be in Antioch, so it could be that he stayed there once he came up. He prophesied that there was going to be a famine during the reign of Claudius Caesar. There's a Roman historian named Suetonius who tells us that during Claudius' reign, there were frequent famines. That's just bad luck if you had to be emperor during frequent famine season. He was Caesar from A.D. 41 to 54. So this gives you an idea about where we are in the timeline. It's going to be about the early 40s now. The Judean famine, so there were a lot of famines during his reign. The one that happened in Judea happened in 46 A.D. So this is somewhere before that. This is, again, barely 15 years after Jesus has died. And Josephus talks about that famine. You can read about it if you want to look that up. And it is interesting to note, in chapter 12, next week, we're going to read about Herod Agrippa dying, the Lord striking him dead. That happened before, historically we know, before that famine. So it seems like Luke is bringing a lot of the Antioch stories together before he tells the next part, which maybe chronologically happened first, or it could be that the Lord just warned the church so far in advance that they had sent the relief before they even got to the famine. So it's unclear, but it really doesn't make that much difference. I want to talk really quickly, and I'm not, I don't have a whole ton of time, but it's important to talk about this, the role of prophecy in the church. We've talked about this several times, especially on Wednesday nights. But in Joel chapter 2, which Peter quoted in Acts chapter 2, saying it was fulfilled in the age of the church, it said that there would be an increase of prophecy in the last days. Remember, he said, on, on your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, they will prophesy by my spirit. Those are the days we are living in. So according to the scripture, not interested in perspective and preference and ideas, what does the Bible say? We are living in the age of the world where there should be the most prophecy happening. The Lord said, I'm going to do what I used to do for a few, and I'm going to do it for all of my children. There are some people who want to make a distinction between Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. That is not biblically warranted. 
What Joel said is, I'm going to do what I've been doing. I'm just going to do more of it. What is a prophet? A prophet is someone who speaks for God directly. Now, there are two mistakes that we can make, although I think they're both important. I think if you're going to say it's only one or the other, you're going to run into trouble. There are folks that want to water down what it means to be a prophet too much, to say that a prophet is just a preacher. Somebody who preaches and teaches, that's prophecy. Actually, Paul is going to distinguish those gifts from each other. There were prophets, some prophets, some pastors and teachers. Remember in Ephesians chapter 4, we see that Agabus was a prophet. We don't read of him preaching or teaching anywhere. They are distinct roles from each other. That's watering it down too much. Then there are some people that want to elevate it too much. They say, well, prophets exist to write scripture. That's not in the Bible. So if we're going to look at what the scripture says... That's what the scripture says. Because what people are trying to prevent, and I understand this, they say, if there are other prophets, then we should have new books to the Bible. No. No, that's not what the Bible says. You look at the Old Testament, there are tons of prophets that did not write anything. Agabus never wrote a lick of scripture. What about the prophet Gad? Never even heard of the prophet Gad before. <laughs> He's in 1 and 2 Samuel. He didn't write anything. Nathan didn't write anything as far as we know. Elisha had a whole school of prophets. Saul, remember when he was wandering around, found the prophets that were worshiping and praising together. Remember the man, I believe his name was Obadiah, who hid 7,000 prophets away during the reign of Ahab. They didn't write any scripture. So there are distinct roles there. The Lord called some people to write scripture, and there was a very small number. Elijah even himself didn't write anything down. And then there are people that will say things, and I'm trying to be kind because these are good warnings to look out for. They say in the Old Testament, you had to hear what the prophet said. It was, it was infallible and it had to be heard. And in the New Testament, we're supposed to test them. But we're not supposed to test Old Testament prophets. Actually, Deuteronomy 18.22 tells us to test the prophets. Moses said, if any prophet comes up and they start prophesying in God's name and it doesn't happen, you don't have to be afraid of those guys. And in fact, you even could be stoned for it. 1 John 4 verse 1 says, to test the spirits. So not every spirit has come from the Lord. There are a lot of false prophets out there. So test them. Well, then why doesn't God tell us to execute prophets in the New Testament? There's a lot of things that the Old Testament executed people for that we don't execute people for. Because God was there setting up a government. Here he was setting up a church, which is not a government. And we're living in the age of grace. I mean, come on, right? What do prophets do? They give us God's word for the right now. Example I used to give to my high school students was, the Bible will tell you about how to make good decisions, but there's no verse that tells you where to go to college. However, the Lord could raise up a prophet in the church that can give you a word of where you're supposed to go. Does it happen every time? No, but that's the example. We should both expect this, and according to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, to desire it for ourselves. He says, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. It's really interesting then that the one gift that we want to chuck out the window is prophecy. But that opens up the door for so much weirdness. Yeah, but with great blessing comes great responsibility to mess up Spider-Man for a second. <laughs> 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 19 through 21. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. There are people and there are, are pastors I've heard People come up to you and they say they've got a word from the Lord for you. Ha! No, you, unless you're writing new scripture, I'm not interested. That is despising prophecy. That's saying, I don't want anything to do with that. God doesn't speak anymore. Well, where is that written? Because the Bible says we're going to see more prophecy in the last days, not less. And I'll tell you guys, you come to our Wednesday night prayer meetings. You come to the meetings before church. When we're giving room for this stuff, God is showing us what's going to happen. The Lord has, has, has spoken words to people in our Wednesday night meetings where somebody says, I feel like God is saying to me, blank, blank, blank. And then somebody breaks down crying because it was right what they needed to hear in that moment, specific to their situation. I've had people come up to me and tell me things that I'm like, okay, thanks. That's really kind of weird. And then a few years later, it came to pass. We test all things and we hold fast to what is good. This is what the Lord was doing. He was letting his church, giving him a heads up. Famine is coming. Get ready for it. In the book of Amos, it says, the Lord does nothing without first revealing it to his servants, the prophets. I realize that this makes things a little more complicated, but it's just exciting, isn't it? That God is still speaking. Amen. Are you saying that God's going to go outside of his Bible? No. 
Never. The Lord told me that I'm allowed to leave my wife and go marry this woman because God wants me to be happy. It's okay, I have a word from the Lord. I don't know who you heard for, but it wasn't Jesus. Oh, are you going to question me? Yes, I am, because God's already spoken, and God does not lie, and God does not change. So either you're wrong or the book is wrong. Well, we shouldn't always take the Bible literally. Okay, there you go. Now we're in trouble. <laughs> the Lord desires to lead his church. He desires to reveal his will to them. So let's be open to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. All right, let's be open to that. The church of Antioch then, in obedience to that, takes up a collection. Everyone according to his ability, not by compulsion. This is how we do it in the church. We try to do it here. Nobody's going to beat you over the head and say, yeah, but you said you were going to give this. No, everyone according to his ability. I bet you this would have helped relations between the two groups, right? The Gentile church just sent a big bag of money to the Jewish church. Like, okay, maybe they're not so bad after all. They're setting an example in love. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 7, 47, about the woman that came in when he was at Simon's house and was weeping and weeping on his feet and wiping them with her hair and Simon and sticking his nose up in the air. Oh, he's not a prophet after all because he's letting that woman touch him. He said, whoever is forgiven much loves much and whoever is forgiven little loves little. These folks have been forgiven much. They knew. They were out there worshiping in the laurel groves. And they were brought to salvation in Christ Jesus. And then the prophet says, there's going to be a famine. I think we should send some help down to those people. Oh, yeah, of course. How much do you need? I can't give much, but this is what I can give. They loved much because they had been forgiven much. And Paul and Barnabas take that down. Galatians chapter 2 describes that meeting, if you want to go read it. He took Titus with him. It was the apostles' chance to kind of evaluate Saul a little bit, check out what he was preaching. Good thing to do. And he says, they didn't add anything to me. And they did not make Titus get circumcised, which would be a problem later on. And as I said, and as we're seeing here, prejudice in the church leads to stagnation. If there's a cap on your love, there's going to be a cap on your ministry. But love begets love. Look at the love that Barnabas had for Saul, what that led to. The love that the Christians had for the Gentiles. The love of Christ for the church. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. You guys know this one. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Every one of us wants to see revival. We want to see lives changed. But we can dilute that attitude with prejudice or selfishness. I want to see lots of people get saved, but man, I hope they all live in the same neighborhood I do. Because that would just be uncomfortable. And I don't know who that is. This is why I try not to give as many specific examples as I can. Because if I give three specific examples, you go, oh, none of that applies to me. I'm fine. <laughs> Which group of people would you walk in? If you were to walk in and 75% of the people in this room belong to blank category in your mind, which group would make you go, oh, maybe we should look at a different church? I think, obviously, they've got enough people here. They don't need us anymore. It's not good. <laughs> That's not good. And again, I'm not picking specific examples. What's in your heart? What makes you go, oh man, they're sitting next to me. Don't let them sit next to me. Okay, we'll be at church together, but don't expect me to talk to them or anything like that. We can laugh at it because it's, it's true. We know how, how ridiculous it is until you're in your own head. And then you're tested. And now all of a sudden you, you have to. Now all of a sudden this place is full of homeless people. Well, they've got to get a house. Do they? Well, I mean, we, we should. Okay, we're well, going to let them live with you. They should get a job. Okay, yeah, so there we go. <laughs> sincere love, right? Let love be with sincerity. Let love be without hypocrisy. Hello, how are you? Very nice to see you. God bless you. Where's my hand sanitizer? Probably got coronavirus. <laughs> Love opens the door. When you love people, that's what the Spirit can use. If you want to be taken to the new frontier, Lord, we want to see this church grow. We want to see miracles. We want to see the word expand. We want to see our prayers answered. Then you better be ready to be taken to new frontiers of love too. Because the Lord will say, here's the people that nobody wants. Will you take them? Maybe a few. If they take a shower. Maybe if they're willing to observe the dietary laws. Maybe if they're willing to move. Maybe if they're willing to go through a class or two. The Lord saved you without any of that. The Lord saved you. All it took was his blood to save you. 
And, and to be fair, I, I know you guys get this. I know that you know that salvation is by grace through faith. The problem is when we start to invent step two, three, four, and five. So that's, that's, that's when you've really arrived. No, it, it's, it's, it's just in a moment. When the Holy Spirit is poured out on somebody, like Peter said, who are we to withhold fellowship from somebody that God has accepted? 